Thank you for listening to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder, the goal of this podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea. On some episodes, members of the Amplius team will discuss a topic or idea. And on other episodes, we will invite an outside guest that has some particular insights or expertise. We really hope you enjoy the show. And like always with Amplius, if you have suggestions as to how we can make things better, please let us know. As a reminder, nothing on this episode should be taken as legal, tax, or investment advice. Tax, legal, and investment advice topics should be discussed one-on-one with the appropriate advisor. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of the Wealth Amplifier podcast here at Amplius Wealth Advisors. As a reminder, the goal of our podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea in a brief 15 to 30 minute conversation. Today, we are really lucky and privileged to have Jason Granite, the Chief Investment Officer of Bank of New York Mellon, as our guest. Let me just see if I do a decent job giving everybody your bio here, uh, given that we, we go back a long way. Uh, I'm, so, a little, I'm a little nervous how this is going to go. Yes, I'm going to. So first things first, as you see behind Jason, uh, a graduate of the University of Michigan uh, undergrad where he uh, attended with with, uh, with my wife. That is the original connection, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and then from there, if I'm not mistaken, you went directly to Goldman Sachs. Is that correct? That is correct. And you were there for the better part of 20 years. 21. I hit, 21 black, I hit, I hit blackjack there. You hit blackjack at Goldman Sachs, finishing in your, your, your last role, Goldman Sachs. I know you were a managing director, but what, what, what area were you, uh, were you uh, involved in at that time? So the last role I had there, I spent the bulk of my career in asset management, managing fixed income portfolios. And I don't know if you want to get to this, but seven of those years overseas in London. Uh, But my last role, I was working directly for the treasurer of the firm and helping the firm and its clients navigate through the transition of LIBOR, which uh, as we speak here in February of 2023, we're down to the last three, four months of that. So, um, you know, that's in the final stretches, but that was my last role there. That was your last role. And then, so when did you start at Bank of New York? How long ago was that now? So I joined here just after July 4th of 2021. So I'm somewhere in the 18, 19 month into my role, uh, zip code. And as I'm sure when we get into talking about markets, it's been quite the wild ride over the last 18, 19 months for sure. Wait, something happened in interest rates over the last 18 months? Yeah, 400 things happened. <laughs> so, uh, well, so why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day, what, what your role is at Bank of New York, and then we'll start talking about interest rates and the markets in general. Sure. So so here at, at, at BNY Mellon, um, the bank uh, is, a, is, is a very much a, a, a classic organization. We touch 20% of the world's investable assets. We have well north of 40 trillion uh, securities under uh, custody, and we are just heavily involved in capital markets from from A to Z, as they would say in the UK. Um, my role is uh, on the asset side of the balance sheet. I have two roles. One is my day job is I look after the liquidity portfolio, the securities investment portfolio of the bank. 
that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 140, 150 billion dollars uh, worth. And then I work very closely with my partner, the chief lending officer, and he and I together think about the strategy for the entire asset side uh, of BNY Mellon. And so I have this, uh, you know, day job of navigating the investment portfolio, which is largely an interest rate risk portfolio, and I'm sure you and I will get into that. Uh, and then this more strategic role where I think about um, the direction of the assets for the, for the balance sheet and aggregate. Got it. And so why don't we start there? As you alluded to a couple minutes ago, it's your time at Bank of New York Mellon uh, has been probably a bit, you, you might have a different example, but probably the most interesting time in the markets uh, and, and in particular, the interest rate world, I would think since the global financial crisis uh, over the last uh, two years, maybe, uh, maybe you have a counter example, but, but either way, it's been pretty interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about that in, in the sense of what you expected when you arrived in your new role and, and, and how, uh, how those plans may have changed a little bit given the uh, macro, macro backdrop and everything going on right now. Sure. Look, interesting markets come in different flavors. I don't. I don't try to think about it. This one might be uh, pistachio or mint chip, and then other ones that have had other uh, things happen in them were, could be other flavors. But look, I, I was a, a person who joined the firm uh, in the middle of COVID. We can discuss if and when and where COVID is going. But in the summer of twenty one, COVID was very present. Um, we were about a year and a bit after COVID broke, meaningful stimulus coming from uh, the government in all different forms through COVID response that had uh, yielded the fact that the Fed took interest rates all the way back to zero, very similar to what they did during the financial crisis uh, after uh, during the events of fall of 2008. They relaunched a lot of the programs that they relaunched in the, in the fall of 2008. They did a lot of things to inject liquidity and support into financial markets given what was happening in the macro backdrop. So for all of 2021, rates were at zero. Uh, the Fed's target range was zero to 25. They were buying bonds. Um, this was a, uh, a time that was, that was characterized with meaningful stimulus. So I joined right in the middle of that. And interestingly, I joined directionally as a more remote employee, even though I was coming to the office and you see me here in my office today and we're, we're back in the office, but I was coming to the office, I would describe as sporadically. And it took me a while to even meet many people on my team and a lot of the colleagues that I work with, you know, that took as long as anything else. Um, and so there was this, uh, the, you know, if we take ourselves back to that world, it was a very different environment, um, both that we were physically living and from a, from a market backdrop. And then as I, I kind of joked a, a minute ago about the, you know, the 400 things different happen over the course of 2022, the Fed hiked interest rates somewhere in the neighborhood of 425 basis points. The target range went from zero to 25 to four and a quarter to 450 uh, over the course of last year. And we went completely away from zero all the way up to, to rates that hadn't been seen in a very long time since the early aughts, right? Like, like right, yep. after, right after the dot-com, before Lehman, Bear, and all of those things that happened. And so, uh, you know, I have this view that a generation on Wall Street is something like 10 to 15 years just because of the nature of, how, of job turnover and people managing risks and doing different things. So it's been a Wall Street generation since we've had any, 
any interest rates like this. And we also got rate hikes in 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 75 basis point clips, which wasn't really a thing since uh, Volcker in the in the late 70s, you know, early 80s times. And so we're really talking about multiple Wall Street generations and real life generations when we had um, movements in interest rates uh, of that magnitude. And obviously that was accompanied by significant inflation and, and we can talk a little bit about, but there was this reaction function to a lot of the stimulus and a lot of the rea- uh, activity uh, over the COVID period that kind of, um, it was, you know, the way I think about it, it was like a tightly wound coil and then it kind of sprung um, uh, in 2022. And then here, as we as we talk in the first quarter of 23, the Fed is is trying to get its footing, even though we're seeing some inflation come down, some of these things come off. They're they're, they're trying to find their footing on what the next uh, what the next phase of this looks like. And 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 the weeks that we're talking, we've seen very big repricing and, and even as, as locally as today, ironically, in the uh, as we talk here on the 21st. Yeah. And, and I think from your perspective, from an economic point of view, what lever do you think the Fed is trying to pull right now? And from the perspective of, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, interest rates affect their life in, in any number of ways, whether it's floating rate debt in the form of mortgage, student loans, so on, uh, how interest rates impact the capital markets with stocks, bonds, et cetera, uh, the housing market, certainly. Um, but with the Fed raising rates, presumably to try and get inflation under control, what part of the economy do you think they're trying to have the most impact on? And do, and do you think uh, best you can tell that is uh, that is working from some of the data you look at? Yeah. So, 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 so two things. One is the Fed has a dual mandate, full employment and inflation. So let's look at both of those things. If we look at full employment, employment and the labor market is very strong right now. There's, there's all the data is showing that the labor market is very strong, very resilient. The most recent um, report that was released um, was shockingly strong. I think uh, yeah. if you strip if you strip away any seasonal adjustments or any of these types of things, I think it was the strongest January employment report in in. 15, 20 years, maybe longer, but I know in a very long time. And so we're talking about a very, very help, healthy labor market. That's something the Fed is very focused on, uh, given it's one of the, the the pillars of their mandate. And actually, I, I would argue that there's some room there. Uh, uh, Chair Powell and other Fed speakers have talked about this idea of of loosening the labor market, having it be a little bit weaker is one of the things that they might need to generate a little bit more slack in the economy so that other aspects can normalize. So that's one pillar and that's very strong. And they're, even though they've moved interest rates in in this historical clip, as we were talking about a minute ago, we're not really getting movement over there. The other side is inflation. We're seeing inflation again in multi-generation highs, you know, going back to the to the late 70s, early 80s, these types of numbers. It's not necessarily a phenomenon unique to the United States. We're also seeing this in other parts of, uh, of the world and developed economies. Bank of England is dealing with something similar. Um, BCB is dealing with something similar. And shockingly, even in Japan, where they've been without inflation for forever and ever and ever, there's definitely signs that they're wrestling with some there as well. Um, and so the Fed is hiking rates because this classic paradigm of 
inflation minus interest rates equals the real rates. Um, they have inflation yeah. really high and they're trying to get that um, under control. And so you're seeing inflation back somewhere north of six in the most recent reading. It was north of nine, not that long ago. And so they're definitely doing things to get um, have it, have disinflation, but they have a 2% inflation goal uh, and they are far away from 2%. And so there's clearly some work that needs to be done. So if you look at the two things that they kind of on their on their chalkboard to attack the labor market and inflation, there's work to do on both, which is why the market is, is telling them you're going to have to continue to hike interest rates. And that's why, you know, we're seeing that in the market. Um, now, you're right. You mentioned that this idea that that uh, you know the people that you deal with, the way that interest rates feed through their life relative to the broader economy. One of the really interesting things that has happened since the financial crisis is the Fed has rolled out all different tools and all different things, and so interest rates really aren't the only thing that the Fed plays around with. They have the size of their balance sheet. They have um, what they call the reverse repo facility. How money market funds can can leave money at the Fed how much they pay for banks to leave their money or, or what they call interest on reserve balances. And so there's all these different matrices of things on the dashboard that the Fed is is, is tinkering with or talking about tinkering with um, to try to attack those things that we discussed. But if we went back to that Volcker era, they really only had interest rates. That was the only vector they were playing with. And now they're playing with all these multi-variables and vectors. And the reality is this is the first time that the Fed is dealing with inflation at this level where they have all these different dials on the board to, to, to kind of maneuver as opposed to just the interest rate vector. And so I think that um, as they go through this, there's there's definitely some, some learning um, uh, being done on their part because a lot of these are a little bit of the first time or the first cycle or the first go that they're, that they're doing certain things. And in your, I guess, bringing that back to your day to day, um, how how important is it for you to have an overall, let's say, macro outlook, for lack of another term? And to the extent that that you have one, how far out are you usually looking there? Like, what 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 time horizon makes sense for Jason when you when you're evaluating uh, uh, the broader capital markets on a day to day basis? So, so here I, I kind of think in three stages. We have the very near term. What is the Fed or what's going to have interest rates this week, this month? We have to real time uh, affect that. We have. I work very closely with our treasurer and our businesses. Um, we have depo- a, a very significant amount of depositors. That's a big part of 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 our uh, our, our business here. And so, real time interest rates matter for real-time deposit rates and real-time business decisions. I said I work very closely with our chief lending officer or real-time lending decisions. That being said, I tend to think in something like two or three-year increments. I find anything longer than that kind of pretty hard and tricky. Um, What's the cycle? What is it going to look like? The Fed, you know, if we we think about the two or three-year increments here, the beginning of last year, the Fed started a cycle where they were shrinking the size of their balance sheet, starting to raise interest rates. If that plays out, as the market is saying, through the end of this year before they stop hiking rates, that's kind of a two-year time frame. If you look at other cycles, you get things in like the two-year time frame and where central banks tend to move and react. And so that's, that's how I tend to think about risk profiling. 
Um, and then obviously we have the longer term. We're thinking about um, the direction of the balance sheet. We're thinking about the longer term interest rate models that we run, the longer term things, because quite frankly, a lot of other risk markets and a lot of other market participants think about the longer term interest rates. You'll hear most the most quoted thing being the 10-year note, um, e even though the reality yeah, yeah. Even though the reality is for us, um, we're operating somewhere in the two, three year zone for the bulk of our risk management and risk profiling. Obviously, you have to be mindful of where um, be, you have to be mindful of where tens uh, are as, as a bellwether for everything else and 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 later. Um, and so that tends to be how I bucket things yeah. and react to things. But um, uh, you know. There's a there's a emotional overlay to a lot of this, and one thing that's kind of played through markets, definitely through COVID and definitely through this inflation period, and 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 the Fed fighting that's come after is kind of what is the reaction function? How do people think? How does it get talked about? What's the PR of the market? And sometimes you get the longer end of the curve captures the imagination of the PR of the market, and so that's also a reason why it's important from sentiment and 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 otherwise to uh, to be mindful of it. And we, you know, when we launched the, this episode of the podcast, we did mention, as we always do, that we're not giving specific investment advice on the podcast. And so, and that still remains the case. Uh, that said, I'd just be curious with your two to three year outlook, uh, even if it's qualitatively, quantitatively, uh, what are you looking for over the next two to three years? Are we entering good times, bad times, mediocre times, uh, uh, and and maybe What's a surprise or two you think that maybe uh, the markets are not factoring in that that, that could uh, rear its head over the next uh, year, two to three year window that you were mentioning? So, uh, again, you know, n w while not giving advice, I can give you some broad strokes about how I'm thinking about things. Sure. Uh, please. I, I definitely, um, as, as, as the markets were starting to price a very quick reversal from the Fed here later this year and into next year, and, and one of the themes that I had been, had been playing and thinking about is that that's unlikely the Fed is going to very quickly turn back around. I think that there's a good amount of work to do, as I indicated, where inflation and labor were. And so I thought the market was a little excited about um, about the ability to get that under control and, I, and, and my belief that kind of uh, as a result, rates would probably linger out uh, longer and the Fed uh, wouldn't turn um, as quickly. And so there's different ways in which different investor types or others can think about that. The other thing that, that I, I've been thinking about generally is that, you know, last week I was reading um, the CBO's release about um, kind of the budget for the government. And while there's a lot of focus on this year for the government, we're, we're sitting at somewhere in around $31 trillion of, of government, um, of U.S. Treasury outstanding. And the CBO is calling for something like $46 trillion in 10 years. And so one of the longer term things I'm, I've been thinking about is, you know, that's a lot of supply. Um where's the demand and where's the intersection point of supply and demand? And I think over the last 10 or 15 years, the world has gotten very used to the supply and demand of, 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 of the bond market intersecting closer to zero than not, whether yeah. it be from the financial crisis through COVID, et cetera. And I think there's a good amount of people that are anchored that we're going to re-return there. Whereas Kind of my bigger theme is that we're probably going to have an intersection of supply and demand somewhere a lot further away than than that. And I think that the market kind of got 
there's a segment of the market or a cohort that got used to this kind of near zero for a quote generation as I defined it, a Wall Street generation of 10 to 15 years. And so the bigger theme that I'm kind of been thinking about is this idea that like the intersection of supply and demand of 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 of, of risk-free rates and government bonds is probably at lower prices or higher yields, depending on how you how you think about um I'm quoting it, but 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 definitely in a different place than where it's been. And and so that's kind of like a bigger, broader theme that I just generally think about is what does the trajectory look like? Because if you look at bond markets since the 70s and that Volcker time that I that, that I look at, we always made kind of the highs and yields in each cycle were always lower. And we've kind of broke that pattern here in this most recent round. So we ha- now have the first time we have a we have a high in yield that's actually higher than the last high in yield in different cycles. Exactly. And so, yeah. and so the question is, are we now trending in that? And when you and when you triangulate that with the with the data that the government publishes on the size of the markets, you look at what the the size of the the UK gilt markets, the size of the JGB markets, the size of the the, the high quality government bond markets in Europe, et cetera, and you have this 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 crazy supply story. And demand, like, what does the intersection look like? And to me, I think that that's a really big theme that all types of investors, all types of people following markets should be mindful of over the next 5, 10, whatever it is, horizon. And so, you know, very locally, I answer the question, I think that, you know, it's unlikely the Fed's going to turn back really quickly, but then more kind of taking a step back, I kind of see this broader this broader theme that I, th- I think is really important. And quite frankly, that's how I approach it. You know, we're we're here at America's oldest bank, 238 years. We had the Hamilton family as some of our first investors um, for those fans of Broadway. Um, and we, you know, so if you think over long term, we've seen all types of stuff, but we're likely to see, um, uh, a, you know, a different tone in, 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 in markets going forward. Um, you know, broadly speaking, in decade terms, not in in day and week terms. Agreed. Understood. And and I think bringing it even to the the shorter term. Um, w- one more question I had on rates, then I had a couple other things to uh, uh, for you there. But uh, one thing we're hearing a lot about this year uh, is the debt ceiling um, it, that's been out there. How much is that factoring into your thinking these days? And uh, and and what uh, what are you even doing to prepare for for such a sort of uh, uh, I don't know self-inflicted bizarre risk? But uh, what, what, what are your general thoughts on it? Yeah. So look, this is something that has happened repeatedly over many times. Um, they seem to conclude with uh, Congress coming to uh, an appropriate solution uh, when when the chips are properly on the table. We believe that that is likely to play out uh, over the course of this year, not without a few uh, bouts of volatility. Instead of thinking about it kind of locally, I I would say that the debt ceiling is someone, it would be something very micro, someone who's invested in very short-term bonds is likely to be volatility as we get through the summer. Again, referencing that same CBO report, I think they said something like July to September is kind of the window when when the government's going to have have to have to reconcile the, the the facts and figures, but like again, taking a step back, I think the bigger picture is that that idea that we're going to get to forty six trillion and we're thirty 
one trillion and kind of what does this mean as a broader dynamic for markets and again to me that just means the supply and demand has to intersect at a different price over the horizon and yeah. so while, while while that's less you know while i think that any every time whether it be this or some other time that that we get into some debt debt ceiling negotiations with with congress there's likely to be very local um, disturbances in the market or vol bouts of volatility or things like like when you zoom out those things will look like little little potholes in the highway but but the, but the bigger highway is just pointed in a very different direction to me i think that's the bigger story here and then the question is is there something that the that congress or the government does to bend the broader expense curve of the United States of that trajectory to 46 to bring that number down or do something different, does one of these debt ceiling negotiations actually change the trajectory of that? To me, that's that's almost a bigger, more important thing to watch than, than local volatility, which you can get because of lots of different reasons, and that's this that will be this summer's reason. Well, call me a skeptic, but I'll believe that when I see it, if that curve actually gets bent, the, uh, uh, yeah. the 46 you're, you're, you're speaking about. Yeah. Speaking uh, of the government, um, yes. just uh, as an aside, uh, new uh, new part of your overall rounding out your resume there, sir. Uh, you are now a member, am I correct, of the uh, U.S. Treasury Department's Borrowing, Borrowing Advisory Committee? Is that correct? That's correct. I was, I was fortunate enough to join that um, last year. Um, a true honor and a wonderful thing to be a part of. And um, I, I'm not going to ask you to share your work on the committee because that that is uh, between you and the government. But uh, uh, how has it been balancing sort of this, uh, you know, very large uh, private sector mandate with with, uh, with government responsibilities as well? Look, the way the way I would frame it is this, I, and I've done work over time with the Fed or other other aspects of the official sector on, on different initiatives. I mentioned the um, the LIBOR initiative I was part of. Um, that was a very large public-private sector joint um, uh, project and, and initiative. I would say that this is just another piece of the puzzle where our 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 financial systems, official sector, whether it be the CFTC, the Fed, um, the, the United States Treasury, and all the other agencies that I'm forgetting to mention now are very good at assembling different public-private forums where they collect information from all different participants to give to, to, to kind of see things from all the different perspectives and angles. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm fortunate that I get to be one of the people that gets to participate in that, but I think it's more of a credit to to, to all of those different official sector uh, bodies that think with peripheral vision to to regularly collect information from our from, from market participants and people that are involved. And I think that that's part of what makes our system unique. I think it's what helps make our system and our policymakers and our our our, our government employees better. And so um, I, I think it's a, a great thing that we do uh, collectively across the financial system of, of, of pulling on this expertise that exists in all different uh, forums. And this just happens to be my little piece, but there's tons of different committees and forums and things that, that, that the different bodies pull together to get expertise. And uh, I, I think it's a tribute to the way that those, those places are run. Great. Good to, good to hear. Um, so I'll have some uh, housekeeping about the podcast at the end. But before we uh, before we go, uh, when we have guests on the podcast, we uh, always ask them if there is a particular uh, cause, charitable or otherwise, that they'd like to uh, 
like to amplify to to uh, to use our name there. Uh, and other than the University of Michigan, which um, you, my wife, and other alums do a great job amplifying, are there any others that uh, that are uh, front of mind for you? Sure. One thing that I um, kind of picked up, and and I and I highly appreciate you uh, you asking this. One one thing that I picked up. Uh, on my travels in the UK was uh, I got very involved in an organization called Fairy Bricks. It's a, uh, it's a charitable firm that has a very simple mission to bright, brighten the lives of sick children through Lego. And uh, all we really do is, is, is bring Lego into, into different communities, to hospitals, um, agnostic to uh, uh, kind of the illnesses or whatever it is with the children, just to, just to brighten those lives. And the power of play is very powerful in hospitals. We've done some great work out in, um, uh, in, uh, amongst the uh, Ukrainian refugees. We have a long history of, yeah. of touching hospitals, uh, across the, the, all of Europe and obviously the UK. Uh, we did a very significant amount uh, here. We got to a very significant amount here in the U S over the past year. And we're always looking to, uh, to expand, we've even gotten to some hospitals in the local Philadelphia area, which I know is very important <laughs> and dear to the um, to the Liebman family's heart. So, uh, it, you know, we're we're always looking for, uh, for for hospitals and places. So maybe this uh, this podcast will yield some listener somewhere who's got a hospital that 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 wants to get in touch with us, and uh, obviously more than happy to field that that call. That's uh, that's awesome, and uh, that, that's great that you do that. And uh, on a on a let's say lighter note around Lego, uh, you do have the most extensive personal uh, collection I have ever seen, including your uh, at-home design of the big house at Michigan, amongst other places. Uh, so uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it can't be all bond markets and interest rates all the time. You got to find you got to find an outlet somewhere. No, un- understood and agreed. Well, um, as we mentioned, you know, if, with each episode of this podcast. One of the ideas behind doing this, and, and frankly, part of our broader move to independence, is we like to draw on resources and contacts, both personal and professional, uh, from a, from a wide variety of, of firms, not just not just Amplius and not just our team. So, uh, to that end, Jason Granite, thank you so much uh, for uh, uh, for coming on and joining us and sharing your expertise. And uh, we will have uh, future episodes coming up soon, both internal to Amplius and other guests. And, and for any of our listeners, if you'd like to give us feedback, let us know others that you would like to hear uh, that, that are as uh, uh, informed as Jason. We, we'd be happy to uh, try and get him on here. And Jason, thanks again. Matt, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, obviously, go a lo- way along back with your family. You guys are, are, are first class through and through. So thank you for everything. And uh, hopefully, I get invited back when uh, maybe the markets are going uh, the other way uh, and the cycle <laughs> turns. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks again.